I'll be reading this morning. Uh, scripture reading is uh, Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Amen. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. So with Chris out of town, he asked uh, both me and George Tribal to kind of give our lesson today. Um, so by profession, I am a structural engineer, so you get to listen to the very interesting topic of ethics in engineering. So uh, the verse that goes along is the one that uh, was just read, Proverbs 28:13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So uh, the story I want to talk about today is the story of the City Corp Center, which was a building that was constructed in 1977, downtown New York. It cost just under $200 million to build this building. Uh, sitting at 59 stories, it was just over 900 feet tall. And at the time it was constructed, it was the seventh tallest building uh, in the world. The head engineer is an individual named William Lamisher. He's a brilliant individual uh, with Harvard education and was an assistant professor at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology, or MIT. Uh, the one big thing about this building and designing it and building it was that there was an existing church on site and they needed that land in order to build this structure and the church said, we don't want to move, we don't want to relocate. And so the engineer and the owner of the building said, well, we can build our structure above your church and have our building overhang above it, um, but we'll have to move the columns around. And so they said, we will build you a new church for free if you let us build our structure so it overhangs above this church. So therefore, the columns were moved around. Uh, they're no longer at the corner of the building where they typically are, but they were on the center of each side. So you can see uh, kind of a zoom in here of these columns that are nine stories tall. The building overhangs above this church, uh, and that's how the building was constructed in 1977. So everything went great. The building went up. Everybody was happy. Uh, and a year later, the lead engineer, William Lemisher, he's sitting in his office working on his next high rise, um, and he gets a phone call from a student, actually a undergraduate engineering student from Princeton University calls and says, um, I am doing a research paper on your structure, and I noticed that it seems like you designed your structure to withstand the winds perpendicular to each face, but I think that the wind coming from that diagonal with the way the columns are not in the normal location on the corner but on the side, I think that diagonal wind could cause this building to fall over, and did you consider that case? And the lead engineer said, I considered it early on and I dismissed it because for all these various reasons, I think that the winds perpendicular to the face are the worst case. Well, the phone call ended and later on uh, that evening, the engineer, uh, Lamisher, was thinking through it more and he thought, you know, what if this student is right and I was wrong? And um, so he actually took a few days, went off to his cabin, decided he was going to redo all the calculations to see to investigate this wind at the diagonal case that he had dismissed early on in the design. Come to find out he does all of these uh, 
engineering calculations, and he discovers that the connections in his building are vastly underdesigned. And so he's extremely worried, and he's thinking to himself, okay, I know that this is bad, but how bad is this? At what point uh, will this building come down? And he determines that the building will collapse winds of only 70 miles per hour. So in New York City, um, hurricanes are commonly very common, and he determined that a wind of 70 miles per hour occurs about once in every 16 years. So he is in big trouble. Um, and he's thinking to himself, this building will collapse in my lifetime. What do I do? So he's driving home from his uh, cabin, and he, he has three options. He can either not tell a soul, don't tell anybody about this, and just hope that nothing bad happens. He said jokingly, kind of, that he could have just driven his car into the abutment of the bridge and just been done with everything. Or he could risk it all. He could risk his reputation. He could risk his license. He could risk a ton of money, uh, maybe the end of his company, and do the right thing, address the issue, and try and keep people from dying in a structural collapse. So I was thinking about this story more, and um, there's several examples in the Bible where People had done the wrong thing and were confronted, and they had decisions that they had to make on what to do. Uh, the first is the story of Cain and his confrontation with God. So uh, Genesis 4, 2 through 7, I'll read that. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of, of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks and their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for Abel his offering, but for Cain his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Cain was confronted by God for um, doing the wrong thing with his offering, and Cain had two options. He could do well and be accepted by God, or he could give into and be controlled by sin. And um, we all know how this ends in Genesis 4.8. It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So instead of doing the right thing and um, doing well and being accepted by God, he gave into sin, he killed his brother, and he was cursed by God. Another story in the Bible of someone who was confronted when he had done wrong is the story of Jonah. So let's turn to Jonah 1, 7 through 8. So Jonah is out on the sea. Uh, he's running away from God. The storms are brewing, and everybody's um, throwing things overboard, trying to figure out um, what's going on, how, how are we going to survive this storm. So Jonah 1, 7 through 8, it says... And they said to one another, uh, picking up where we're at, they are the sailors on the ship, come, let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing, or sorry, I'm jumping around here. So they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? So Jonah is out there, and he's confronted. They're asking him, what have you done? And Jonah has two options here. He can either lie about his sin, say, I have done nothing. 
uh, I am innocent and let the, the ship sink and kill everybody on it. Or he can admit that he is wrong, get thrown overboard, uh, and drown himself, or so he thought. And so picking up in Jonah uh, 1, 9 through 12, it says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the sea and dry land. And when the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And he said to him, What shall we do? To you, the sea, that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempest. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. And so he ended up doing the right thing when he was confronted by these sailors, and he said, I have sinned, I have done wrong. Throw me in the sea, let me drown. Save your own lives, um, because I am the one who has done wrong. Another story in the Bible where um, someone is confronted for their wrongdoing is the story of King David. And so we will turn to uh, 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew it up with him and with his children. And he used, it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take up his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So Nathan, or David was confronted by Nathan because he had taken another man's wife, he had committed murder, And Nathan said, you are the man that has done these things. At this point, David had three options. Um, He was king. He had a ton of power. He could have had Nathan killed. He could have ran away and taken his own life, just like Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, he ran off and he hung himself from a tree. Or he could admit his sin and change his ways. And we see what David did in 2 Samuel 12:13 it says David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die so in this case we see that that David he did the right thing he admitted his sin and he changed his ways um, the Lord ended up sparing his life because of this um, and then in the other stories we see the example of Jonah where the Lord spared his life as well and he did the right thing and went on to save uh, a bunch of people. But then we see in the story of Cain where he did the wrong thing. Someone was murdered and he was cursed. So going back to our story of the engineer, he is driving home and he has this big decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to um, not tell anybody and just hope my building doesn't collapse? Am I going to kill myself and just not deal with this situation, just check out? 
or am I going to risk it all? I'm going to do what's right, and am I going to keep people from dying in this building that I uh, designed? In the end, Lamasher he admitted that he was wrong. He picked up the telephone. He called uh, the architect. He called the city of New York. He called his lawyers, obviously. He called the insurance company, and he said, we have a major issue. If we do nothing, this structure will fall, and it will collapse, and it will kill potentially thousands of people. Lamasher he came up with the design of a structural repair for the building at a cost of about 4 to $8 million dollars. Uh, his insurance policy was only good for $2 million, so um, somebody else had to come up with this money. And the uh, owner of the building ended up paying for the rest. And then in the summer of 1978, um, currently they had hired a ton of welders to come, and everybody is working overtime to try and get this building uh, repaired before it collapses. Hurricane Ella comes up off the coast, 125 mile an hour winds, which surely could take down this structure. Fortunately, before it makes landfall, it turns off and goes into the coast and dies. So because this engineer chose to do the right thing, the city court building, uh, it still stands today. You can go to New York. Uh, you can go inside of it. You can see it and not have to worry about it falling over on top of you. And so in our own lives, um, humans, we make mistakes. Uh, we make mistakes in our profession, at work. Uh, we make mistakes at home. We make mistakes in the church. Uh, we sin. That is a part of our nature. Um, and because of this, it's not uncommon that we are confronted by other people because of our sin, because our sin affects other people. Uh, we can get confronted by our coworkers, by our bosses. We can get confronted by people at our homes, such as our spouses, our uh, parents, or even our children can confront us. Or in church setting, we can get confronted by our brethren. And our response to uh, this confrontation is key. We can either deny that we did anything wrong or ignore it, push it away, or we can admit that we have done wrong and repent of our sins and do the right thing and change our ways. Um, just like the engineer admitted his mistake, created a repair, and did what was right in the end. And 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's uh, all that I had to talk about today. And then the second half, I'm going to turn it over to George, and he is going to talk to you about um, some microbiology and what he does in his profession. So. Can you guys hear me? Awesome. Yeah, so Chris being out of town, he reached out to Coulter and I and uh, asked us if we would do the sermon. And I think Coulter would agree with me. He left it almost as vague as possible. And when he talked to me, he said, uh, uh, we were, he was mentioning that he had talked about Michael Faraday last week and how cool he thought that was to reach into someone in science who... Uh, against maybe the majority of people, stayed convicted to his beliefs and talked uh, and, and, and basically saw God everywhere in his work. So I'm going to do a little bit of the same today. Um, so I'm currently a graduate student at Montana State University uh, in the biochemistry department. And I've been in sciences for essentially my whole life, um, partially because one of the first experiences I had looking at 
life on the micro scale, um, I felt like how how amazing it is and like how much beauty there is in the design that's not only tiny but also enormous. And so uh, that experience started uh, when I was about 12. Um, there had always been this uh, gray box in my parents' attic. It was a small gray box, and it's one of those boxes that has that really old smell to it, and you're just kind of like, oh, what's in there? I don't really know what's in there. And uh, one day I finally asked my dad what's in there, and he took it out and pulled it out, and it was an old microscope, just a reflecting light microscope, so where you just get natural light and shine it through a sample, and you can see uh, things that are you know, micrometers big. And so the first thing he showed me was an onion peel, and I just remember being just flabbergasted by seeing all those rows of cells and how intricate they fit together and just being amazed by that. And I'd never seen, I'd only seen things like an ant through a magnifying glass, so to see something on that degree, that small, um, immediately I was hooked, and I wanted to continue to explore that. Um, so when I started going to school, I just kept going to microbiology, and I did my undergrad here at MSU and worked for a couple labs where essentially I was behind the microscope maybe like 50 to 60% of the time looking at things, and I was always just amazed to see things, you know, what we see in the meter, meter scale, which is about a yard, and then go look at things that are in the micrometer scale, which is about a thousandth of a meter. And then seeing that just blew me away. So I have this titled The Scale of God, just because it's almost something that is, in our life we can see this and it's hard to comprehend. And so I just wanted to share a little bit of that with you guys today. So first, um, I'm going to show you kind of uh, a diagram of what everything we have in our universe and kind of where it belongs on the scale. So what we're looking at is basically in the center there's a one and that's one meter, which is equivalent to roughly like three feet. And then it's a log scale, so basically that's counting the number of digits in that number. And so if we threw ourselves on here, I know mo most of us are taller than three feet, but uh, roughly where I'm going to put humans at one, that would be about an oak tree. Uh, Eiffel Tower, which is exactly 300 meters tall. Mount Everest, which height I don't know. Um, then there would land Earth. That would be of the size of the sun. Then there's our solar system. And that's about the size of a galaxy, so it's a pretty big jump. You know, once you get outside of our solar system, there's a mass amount of space between, but before you hit something else. So that's about the size of the solar system. And then that's currently the size of the observable universe, so what we can actually see uh, with our telescopes. And that's 10 to the 26 meters. So that'd be like one with 26 zeros behind it. So it's pretty big. But I do work a little bit in the solar system as far as my, sci my science work goes, but also majority of my work is on the other side of the scale. So this would be about what a penny is, about a centimeter. And then maybe some small bugs. That is supposed to represent a strand of hair. So your hair is actually pretty small. Um, there's an E. coli, so an E. coli is about one uh, micrometer, so that's a thousandth of a meter. And then viruses are even smaller than that. And then we get down to macromolecules like your DNA. Uh, next on the scale would be a nucleus of an atom, so there's a, a nucleus of just a, a single atom. And then an electron, which is significantly smaller than that, and those are the, the particles that are whizzing around that nucleus. And then, I'm trying to remember what length that is, uh, 10 to the 
negative sixteenth is the shortest measurable length. So this means the length that we can accurately measure and say this is that length. So we're not able to measure, make an accurate measurement below this length. And then there's a neutrino, which is these tiny particles that are just whizzing through the universe and they can penetrate and go pass through like anything. And then beyond that, which when I made this scale, I didn't go that far, but it's called a Planck length, which is a 10 to the minus 34 meters. And a Planck length is theoretical, and basically it is used to describe things like uh, quarks, which are these tiny particles, uh, string theory, I don't know if you've heard of string theory, and it's also the, at what's at the center of a black hole is actually about a Planck length, so in the center of this giant black hole full of mass, uh, the actual black hole is about a Planck length big. So this is kind of the scale. And to go from a Planck length to uh, the observable universe, there's 60 zeros between that, which might not sound like a lot, but that's a ton of zeros, and that's a huge distance. And to me, to think about going from a Planck length to the observable universe, it's just hard to comprehend the scale that spans that. But then I think about it, and here's just a, a verse from Isaiah uh, where he was talking about uh, God and explaining how majestic he is. And he says, Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his finger? Who else knows the weight of earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? God has. And his knowledge of everything on the sky, scale of the universe all the way to the, that tiny micro scale he knows all of it and everything in between there. And when I go into the lab and I work, it just blows my mind to see details under the microscope and see that what he has created at that scale. So next I want to show you uh, on the larger scale. Um, many of you probably heard about the Hubble Space Telescope. And here's a picture of Hubble. Uh, it was launched into Earth's orbit in the 1990s, and this allowed uh, astronomers at NASA and across the globe to take pictures all over the universe. And it's, since it's been launched, so it's 30 years old, it's captured more than a million observations of our universe uh, showing pictures like this. So it can see into vast distances and see the, uh, the, these gas clouds and different galaxies all over the universe. I have this uh, labeled Hubble dark spot, and so that's what I want to talk about is the dark spot. So maybe 10 years after they launched Hubble, uh, they, what they wanted to do, an astronomer came in and had some time on the telescope, and what he wanted to do was uh, look into the darkest spot in the sky. So in, across our entire, uh, what we can see from Earth, he wanted to find the darkest spot in the sky and focus the telescope and see, you know, what do we see in the darkest spot in the sky? Are there lots of stars, or what are we going to see? So they point Hubble to the darkest spot at that time in the sky, and here's what they saw. A lot. Which just, it's just mind-boggling. And you can see how many galaxies are there. And so when they're looking into the darkest spot in our sky, and there's still this much, that scale is so big. Our universe is so enormous. Just a verse from Psalms that I felt captured this was, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And to me, that's just such amazing handiwork to see when we get these uh, telescopes up there and see these amazing formations, gas clouds and galaxies, just 
millions and millions of miles away. But on the other side of the scale where I spend most of my time, so first I want to talk about a teaspoon of soil. So I work with bacteria and many of them are in soil. And in one teaspoon of soil, there's roughly 100 million to 1 billion bacterial cells in that teaspoon. And you would look at it and you wouldn't think like there's that many cells living there, but if you take your time and you got all those cells out and looked at them under the microscope, you would observe anywhere from 100 million to 1 billion cells. That's a lot. And in there, there's also going to be, if you took, there's fungi and they grow by what, what are called a hyphae, and it's kind of like these strands of cells. If you took all the fungal cells out and laid them end to end, it'd be roughly eight to nine feet in a teaspoon of soil. That's how small they are. And they're living there in this intricate ecosystem, thriving. And so for my job, I get to do this really cool thing where I get to go take soil samples and go look at them. So I just want to show you some of those things. But first, I'm going to start with some bigger stuff. So this is an image that I took on a scanning electron microscope of some pollen. This is from a lily. So I just took a lily pollen and then put it on a slide, and I went and looked at it under an electron microscope that just essentially shoots, shoots electrons so you can get down to like nanometer scales. And to me, I mean, it's amazing because you can see the pollen on the slide, and then you get to see this, this detail that exists there, just like intricate detail. And it's just that handiwork that God's used to make such beautiful things that typically we don't get to see day-to-day -day life. And so it's, I just want to share it with you because it's so amazing. This is another sample. It's from Guamas Basin, which is down in Mexico. And it's a roughly, it's a, from a hydrothermal vent that's a, on the bottom of the ocean floor. And it's putting out um, hot water. And there's a, a thriving ecosystem there. And Guamas Basin is 2,000 meters below the surface of the ocean. So that's roughly over 6,000 feet. So this is uh, from an organism that was living 6,000 feet below. So that's deeper than we are high above the ocean. So Bozeman's five-something feet. And so this is deeper than Bozeman is above. And there's life thriving down there. And what this organism is, it's a part of a diatom. And so what these are is they're organisms that take silica and basically build a shell around themselves. So what you're looking at is actually glass. It's a silica. And they'll make these little formations. And they're just incredibly intricate. And so it's this tiny, fragile glass organism that's living on the bottom of the ocean, 2,000 meters below the surface, thriving. And it's super delicate, but it survives and has this beautiful structure to it. And here's just another image zoomed in. This is a, a, the bottom of one. But if you look a little bit closer, you can see kind of the, some of that honey, honeycomb structures. And those are roughly what you're observing is a nanometer, so a billionth of a meter. So tiny, tiny scale. And it's just full of design when I look at it. It's just beautiful. It's full of structure that just screams creation. And I just, this is one of the things I just love to do is go look at these. Um, I can waste a lot of my lab's money spending time on the microscope. <laughs> um, then a little bit closer to home, so this is actually where I study uh, the organisms I study, and these are uh, E. coli in the upper, uh, upper right and left, and that's because I always have to have a control. And then the organisms I study are these big purple blue ones. And this is on a fluorescent microscope, and they're roughly anywhere from a micrometer to a meter. But we get a look, and, and what I have here in these is, uh, if you look at the E. coli, which are those long, elongated cells, it's their uh, 
they're basically their skin around the cell that's labeled, and in the middle is their DNA. So that blue is actually DNA that's labeled in the cells. So we actually label that and go look at them under the microscope and see, and, and to me it just blows my mind to know that that's what I'm looking at. That's actually their DNA that I'm seeing. So to go from that scale, it's just amazing to think about what we see with a Hubble Space Telescope all the way down to these micro nanometer scales that are observable, and then who made them and knows them intricately from the mass all the way to the tiny. So I'm just going to leave you with uh, one verse here, two verses actually. Uh, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And I'm just going to focus on that, seek me in vain, because God is everywhere. And for me, it's hard not to go out and look in nature and see what he's created. And you'll tell there's a picture of Grand Prismatic in Yellowstone behind there, and that's uh, some of my work has been in Yellowstone, and just seeing that level of life. And I didn't even talk about extremophiles, but the life can exist in these harsh environments 2,000 meters below the surface of the ocean in just unbearable pressure. It just blows my mind. And God is everywhere, and if we look, we will find him. So with that, I'm going to end, and Gary's going to do communion.